Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. For many people, having children is an important part of life that increases one's sense of meaning and enjoyment in many ways. But for all of the great things that can come with parenthood, there are also some trade-offs because parenting can be stressful and it can feel all-consuming. During pregnancy and parenthood, it's not uncommon for sex to decrease or sometimes even disappear. And the sex that does happen is sometimes less satisfying or even painful, and that can spill over and create broader relationship and intimacy issues. So how can you maintain satisfying sex lives and relationships during the transition to parenthood? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to explore common sexual questions and concerns during pregnancy and parenthood, from whether it's safe to have sex during pregnancy to how you can create space for sex once kids enter the picture. We're also going to explore practical ways of keeping the spark alive, enhancing pleasure, and maintaining an intimate connection with your partner. My guest is Dr. Natalie Rosen, an associate professor in the departments of psychology and neuroscience and obstetrics and gynecology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She has published over 125 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters on sexual dysfunction. She's an associate editor of the Archives of Sexual Behavior and president of the Canadian Sex Research Forum. Dr. Rosen maintains a small private practice focused on sex and relationship therapy. This is going to be a wonderful and very practical conversation I can't wait for, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Before we dive in, get off the couch and back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can give you the confidence you need. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Simply sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once approved, you'll receive your prescription in days, discreetly shipped direct to your door. No doctor's visit and no pharmacy waiting line. As I've said on this show many times before, there's nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. As a special deal for listeners, you can try Blue Chew free when you use promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code PSYCH, to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information, and thanks to Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, Natalie, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. You've done so much incredible work, and I'm really excited to finally connect with you. Now, as a starting point, I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about your professional journey. So specifically, how did you get into the world of sex and relationship research and therapy? What drew you to this area? Sure. Um, We can start there because it started a long time ago. I'll tell you that. My parents actually have memories of me in high school listening to Sex with Sue with friends on Sunday nights. It's probably a common story for lots of people, but that was when it it started for me to think like, is this a job that I could do one day? And then I went off to university and took a human sexuality course and got interested in it. It was sort of whatever class really like inspires you and you want to read the textbook even when you're not studying and this kind of a thing. And I, it was just a topic I got interested in to the extent that I had great mentors who sort of said, yeah, we can, we can help introduce you to some folks who would let you dive a little bit deeper. So, so I'd say that's where it started. I just had kind of inherent interest from a young age. 
Well, I love that Sue Johansson inspired you in part to go into this field. She has inspired many, and I used to watch her show as well when I was younger and it was back on the air, and it was always a good time. And I actually used to watch it with my mom when I was in my 20s, and she always got a kick out of it. And so I'm I'm glad that that resource is there. I didn't know quite as young as you that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know the research part would excite me as much as it did by that age, right? So it started off thinking about, you know, the idea of sex therapy or helping people, you know, improve their sex lives. But I'm, I'm super passionate about, about research and didn't really realize that till, till much later. It's funny. A lot of people think that research is kind of inherently boring. But when you're studying sex, never a dull moment in the life yeah. of a sex researcher. So let's talk about sex, pregnancy, and parenthood. We know that sex is important for our overall health and well-being, that it can reduce stress, and it can bring us closer to our partners. However, there are a number of factors that can get in the way when it comes to tapping into these benefits. So, for example, some people avoid sex during pregnancy because they're worried that it might cause harm. In fact, in the research I've seen, concern about hurting the baby or causing pregnancy complications is actually the most common sexual problem reported by heterosexual adults during pregnancy. And in some studies, more than a quarter of women and their partners say this is something they worry about. And I've gotten lots of questions from readers about this subject over the years, so let's talk about it. So is it common for people to have sex during pregnancy, and is it usually safe to do? So it is, like most people continue to have sex in pregnancy, even though they have that kind of worry. So one of our studies that we did looking at sort of fears about having sex in pregnancy suggested that it is common that people do worry about that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they stop having sex. It's something that's kind of on their mind, which suggests that, you know, even just a little bit of education or, you know, a green light from their doctor or checking with their doctor would probably alleviate some of that concern because they are doing it anyways, for the most part. But unless you're, you're a doctor, doctor has specifically said that there's a concern about having uh, penetrative sex specifically, then it's certainly safe to do so. And I say that in particular, because of course, there's also some other options of ways that you can have sex that even for those who who might be told by their doctor not to have penetration, they could still enjoy other sexual activities. Yeah, and that's totally consistent with what I've seen in the research. In fact, I think that What I've seen suggests that most heterosexual couples still have sex up through about the seventh month of pregnancy or so, and then it starts to decline in the the later months. So it certainly is possible. Most people do it. And unless it's a high-risk pregnancy, there's not really any specific concerns in terms of how it might impact fetal health or anything like that. Now, a related question I get is sometimes around how to have better or more pleasurable sex during pregnancy. So as you found in your research, some pregnant women experience painful sex or they might experience issues with sexual desire, arousal, or orgasm. So for pregnant people who want to maintain a healthy, happy sex life during pregnancy, what do they need to know when it comes to boosting sexual pleasure and satisfaction? So speaking first about the pain or discomfort, right? So there could be pain during like penetration, or there could just be discomfort, especially as you get bigger, as as the person is trying to get bigger, or there could also be, you know, other symptoms of pregnancy earlier on, feeling nauseous or fatigue, like there's 
lots of different potential physical things that could be interfering. And I would say the best tool that people have is, is going to be flexibility. So the things that might have been working before or before you're pregnant, particular positions you, you enjoy might not be as comfortable anymore. Or maybe, you know, penetration was sort of like a key thing on the sex menu uh, for a while with your partner. And it's tough to sort of like shift and it can be tough for lots of people to sort of shift or think outside that box when that's something they've enjoyed for a long time. But that that's my biggest piece of advice for folks is trying to be a bit more flexible with your repertoire so that you can experiment potentially with some other positions or just other sexual activities that are still sex, you know, that's still sex and still you get all those benefits, the warm and fuzzy emotional benefits, the physical benefits, even if, you know, there's no penetration um, on the table that during that time. So that's so that's one of the, the key things I would say for some of the phys- physical symptoms like pain during sex. But you know, one of the other most common ones we hear is like fatigue, uh, which can be a big, you know, interfering factor, both in pregnancy and on the other side, too, for sure, postpartum, you know, tiredness, and that's a real like damper, uh, has a real dampening effect on sexual desire. So even like interest to have sex in the first place. So there, I think, again, it, it's about flexibility. And it's also about talking to your partner and thinking and creating, maybe creating some new opportunities. So thinking about when not as tired maybe you don't usually think about sex on a Saturday morning but maybe that's something that you want to consider because that's when you're feeling more well rested for example flexibility adaptability expanding your definition of sex you know these are so important not just during pregnancy but also just at any stage of life because our bodies change as we age or as Some people develop disabilities or chronic illnesses, right? And the more flexible and adaptable you are, the more that you see sex as being more than just penetrative intercourse, then the more options you have for sexual fulfillment. So, you know, just sort of a question related to this, how do you think people should define sex? So, you know, a lot of people, when they define sex, define it very narrowly. But what do you think as a sex therapist is a good sort of more expansive definition of sex or way that you can think about it so that it can create all these different options and opportunities for you? I love that question. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a personal definition for sure, but the key is about expanding it. So it's really about thinking about anything that includes, usually I would consider some kind of like genital activity, but it doesn't need to be, as you're saying, like penetration. So it could be anything that's like involving your erogenous zone. So that also isn't genitals necessarily for everyone. In breath, it could be other parts of your body, but things, you know, that turn you on, something that, you know, you find sexually arousing with or without a partner, that's all sex to me. So, you know, it, you have to be really careful in therapy because we, it's even as a sex therapist, I fall into the trap all, all the time where I realize, wait a second, I think we're, we're only talking about penetration here, aren't we? And you have to kind of like check in and clarify and redefine often. And then, you know, for some people, there's also sexual activity that might not include physical touching of each other, right? So there could be uh, phone sex or, you know, other kinds of cyber or online sexual activities in long distance relationship where you might um, be touching yourself and talking to your partner and they're touching themselves or these other combinations. So it's really about, you know, activities that are arousing and stimulating your, your sort of sexual interest. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think of it. Sex is about arousal, pleasure. It's often about intimacy as well. And so if you sort of expand your definition in this very broad way, it just creates endless opportunities and 
I think any stage of life that you're in, it can be useful to have that broad definition and that will make you more flexible and more adaptable going forward. One of the tricky traps that people fall into, whether it's in pregnancy or it might be, you know, if there's other sexual problems, because you mentioned the idea of intimacy, is that we start actually moving away from small pieces of intimacy for fear that it's going to lead to sex or some kind of expectation of what, you know, the a traditional definition of sex. And then you lose those opportunities to sort of maintain that connection. So I talk a lot to couples about that, that like, you know, the benefits of sex is often about intimacy too, but can we have those intimate moments without the expectation that it's going to lead to sex if that's not what you're sort of prepared to do or comfortable doing at that time? Because we get so much avoidance of just touching or kissing or holding each other or cuddling on the couch because there's that lack of communication around, okay, I want to cuddle with you, but I don't want you to expect sex right now because I'm still feeling a bit off or for whatever reason. So, so I think that sort of intimacy piece is a really key component that we don't want to lose. Yeah, I love that piece of advice and information so much. And I think it ties in with sort of this idea of sexual scripts and how people tend to think that sex sort of follows this linear progression. And once this thing starts, this thing is going to happen next and so forth. And so again, that goes back to if you think about sex in this more flexible way, where it doesn't always follow the same script, that can help prevent shutting off those opportunities for intimacy and other ways that you might experience pleasure that don't necessarily have to lead to penetration. Now, we know that pregnancy itself can cause some negative impacts on people's sex lives and relationships, and that doesn't necessarily resolve once the pregnancy is over. So during the postpartum period, other issues can arise. But before we get into those and potential solutions, let me ask this question, because it's another one I often get asked, which is, when is it safe or usually safe to resume sex after pregnancy? I get asked that question a lot too. So I think many physicians talk about sort of this six week checkup time point. So postpartum, most uh, people who've given birth are due in for a checkup with their, their doctor to give them a physical exam and make sure that everything is healing okay. And that's often where they might say, yep, everything's healed okay. It's okay to have you know pen penetration of some kind now um, at that six week time point. But there's a lot of variability. There are many people who feel ready to have sex and up before they go to that checkup and they go for it and it feels fine. And there's a lot of people also who don't feel ready yet at six weeks who maybe attempt to have penetration and it's painful. And that can be pretty distressing for couples to experience that pain when they've never had pain before. And we have some recent data that was just published that tracks women and pain during sex in particular from pregnancy all the way to two years postpartum, so at 24 months. And there's this significant kind of minority. So it's a minority, but it's not such a small minority. It's about 20% of women who do report fairly significant moderate levels of pain. So when I say that I'm talking about something in the neighborhood of like four out of 10 on a scale of zero being no pain and 10 being the worst pain imaginable. So something in the neighborhood of about four, where it, the pain increases in pregnancy, it's at its peak at that four-ish level at three months postpartum, and then it starts to drop down till 12 months postpartum, hitting kind of closer to that two-ish spot, two on 10, and then stays relatively stable. That's quite one in five women who are who are reporting pretty significant pain. The good news is it does decrease, tend to decrease over time, but certainly not by six weeks 
postpartum. So there is some longer healing, you know, that's happening and, and time. And for some, it persists. And so for that, that group of women, those, those are the ones where, you know, I would recommend that they check in with their doctor about it because there are some uh, treatments available for helping to manage pain during sex. I'm glad you brought up that there's so much individual variability in all of this. And there's a lot of variability in terms of how pregnancy might impact your sex life and then also what the postpartum outcomes are. So, you know, for example, during pregnancy, some women become much hornier and desire a lot more sex than they did before. Others experience less desire. Some people experience pain, other people don't, you know. So there's no just one normal here. There are lots of different trajectories. And so, you know, there there's just this wide range of, of experiences that can happen that I think is worth acknowledging. And thanks for sharing the information around pain and the postpartum period. We know that there are other issues that can arise, though, that can impact your sex life during this period of time. And that can include, for example, postpartum depression or just having really high levels of stress. And sometimes that can further contribute to pain, exacerbate pain-related issues, but it can also put a damper on desire and arousal and, and other things like that. So what else do you think somebody who is in that postpartum period needs to know when it comes to improving sexual health and function and dealing with some of these other issues like depression or stress that might come up. Yeah. So I think, you know, you hit on two of the, two of the key ones that we find in, in our research or we have found in our research, particularly during this sort of vulnerable period, which I would define as kind of like around the three months or so postpartum, that tends to be something that we're seeing over and over as a little bit uh, particularly vulnerable where you've had the baby for a few months, you're kind of still, but you're still very much adapting to sort of new roles and responsibilities, haven't really settled into a rhythm necessarily. Baby is starting to tease around that time, maybe still breastfeeding. It's just like, it seems to be a peak point where couples are, are really struggling, but yet they sort of think or expect that they should be kind of like, back to normal with respect to their sex lives. So for me, I think some of it is about adjusting expectations. So having a bit more compassion and patience uh, for each other. And particularly for people who are in a couple or who are in a relationship, it's sharing and talking about some of those expectations because there has been historically a, a real emphasis on the person who gave birth as the one who's having like more sexual difficulties. And in, in fact, we do see that in our data that like the, the person who gave birth has more changes biologically, psychologically, they're often the person breastfeeding. So there is tends to be more going on for them. But the partner, whether it's a male partner or female partner, is also struggling with their sexuality. And we see that across the board too. So sometimes lower desire, certainly lower sexual satisfaction as well. So there's two people there um, that are going through these changes and these adjustments. And so I think that the piece about talking with each other about how, how you're feeling, especially if there's a discrepancy, like one person's more ready to have sex, which isn't always the the non-birthing partner, by the way, some of our uh, data, we've shown that that desire discrepancy also happens the flip side where the person who gave birth, often the mother is is sort of ready sooner and, and in the mood. So it happens both ways. But you know, they're both going through changes and they need to so sharing and talking about that readiness with each other, communicating about expectations is really important. And any changes that you might be experiencing in terms of preferences like you know new moms often talk about their breath different sensations in their breasts like they used maybe their breasts were really like erogenous zone before but especially now when they're breastfeeding not feeling like they want to be touched as much there but 
without telling your partner that, you know, they're not able to sort of adapt and, and change sort of what they're doing. So those are a couple of things I think that are important to think about. Yeah, so important, the communication and the matching expectations. And it's important during pregnancy and in that postpartum period, but it's also just important in general in relationships. Exactly. So it's not like necessarily like groundbreaking news for this particular population, except it's a time when they might not have been expecting problems in the same way, right? So that's what makes it kind of unique that it can get amplified up in a way that, you know, we know that all couples have discrepancies in their interest in sexual desire, for example, that happened ever. But some but couples have often sort of figured out how to navigate that before they've had it. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a bigger problem or this discrepancy emerges when it wasn't there before. And they, they might not feel prepared to deal with it. They might not have needed communication in the same way, but now they do, but they haven't practiced it and they're feeling super stressed. <laughs> Um, it's sleep deprived at the same time. So it's kind of like a hot spot for, for couples where there might have been vulnerabilities or not before, but they just kind of like get amplified during this time. Yet another reason why it's really important to establish good sexual communication patterns early on in your relationship, even if you already have a great, active, satisfying sex life. Now, we have much more to discuss, including how to maintain an active, satisfying sex life as your kids grow up and when it's time to consult a sex therapist. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The Kinsey Institute is committed to research, education, and historical preservation centering around sexuality, gender, and reproduction. The Institute has been around for 75 years and is a trusted source for scientific knowledge. You can support the Kinsey Institute's work and mission by following them on social media, joining their email list, or making a gift to help them continue their efforts and further our understanding of human sexuality. Visit KinseyInstitute.org to make your gift and help continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey for generations to come. If you're anything like me, you probably didn't get the sex education that you wanted or deserved growing up, but it's never too late to learn. If you're on the hunt for helpful resources, check out Beducated, the Netflix for better sex. No matter where you are in your life or sexual journey, Beducated has courses that will help you boost your sexual knowledge and cultivate more satisfying relationships. They have courses that can help you improve your sexual communication skills, deal with common sexual difficulties, and get more pleasure from both solo and partner play. You can try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, get 70% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. It's just $7.99 per month after that, and the discount is locked in forever. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. So we've been talking about sex during pregnancy and the initial postpartum period, but we know that sexual issues often persist into parenthood. And for example, one issue that often comes up is that one partner might take on a lot more childcare responsibility than the other, and the resulting stress might put a big damper on their libido. So they might not be really interested in having sex, but their partner is, and that creates this sexual desire discrepancy. Now, we talked a little bit about this previously, and we talked about the importance of communication, but as a sex therapist, I know that you encounter discrepant sexual desires often in relationships. So what are some things that you recommend in terms of how do you bridge that gap? So beyond just communicating about it, what, what are some practical ways you can deal with a sexual desire discrepancy? When I see these couples in therapy, we talk, we talk about sort of like how they're thinking about it, how they're feeling about it, and then also like what they're doing about it, if we kind of break it down into those sort of three areas. So 
One of the shifts that um, I think is really important when you're talking about desire discrepancies and, and by shift, I mean like mindset, but like the mindset is that couples often come in thinking that the person who has lower desire is the one with the problem. So we need to do something about with that person to get their desire up to matching the other person, right? When in reality, it's not, that's not the case. The reality is that the couple has a difference in their desire. And it's not just about the person who has less desire trying to increase their desire. It's about how they sort of manage it together so that both of their needs are met. So one of the, you know, useful constructs that, that I've worked on a bit with a, a colleague who maybe you've had on your show before, which is Dr. Amy Muse, you might have chatted with her before about this idea of sexual communal strength, and sort of being motivated to meet meet a partner's sexual needs. And in one of our um, transition to parenthood studies, though, we also looked at this idea of uh, being motivated to meet a partner's sexual needs when their need is actually not to have sex. <laughs> Right. So that when we talk about sexual needs, it's not just about, you know, being motivated to like have sex because the other person wants to. It's also how to be the type of partner who's okay with not having meeting the need to not have sex because that is, you know, what's best for the partner. Right. So we talk about both of those. And in the that latter instance of, of, of being sort of understanding when your partner is not being in the mood sometimes that's about sort of taking ownership then of your own sexuality and your own sexual needs and what that looks like. And a lot of couples that I see in sex therapy, there's still pretty big, you know, stigma and barrier around masturbation, particularly masturbation that your partner knows about, right? Or that might be like in bed at the same time. So that's one of the behavioral things that I talk a lot about with couples about, you know, that managing a desire discrepancy it can be about the couple, but it can also be about you as an individual and taking some, you know, individual ownership around, you know, your sexual needs and both members of the couple being, being comfortable with that option of saying, you know, you know, we might not have sex together tonight, but that doesn't mean that I can't have sex with myself. So that's kind of one of the, the more practical things that we might talk through, which can, which can heighten some emotions and feel sort of like a bit scary for people sometimes. And that's where some of that like emotion work also comes, in, comes into play. Absolutely. I think that's all fantastic advice. Now, I know you've also done some work looking at men's and women's sexual concerns around the transition to parenthood. And for new mothers and fathers, sometimes they have different concerns. Mm -hmm. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about how men and women are similar or different in terms of the types of sexual issues they tend to be worried about in the transition to parenthood? Yes, I can. For that one, we, you know, we did this early study. We had surveyed, I think it was over 250 uh, new parent couples. They all had an infant between three and 12 months postpartum. And they responded to a questionnaire that lists over 20 sexual concerns that were pretty specific to the postpartum period. So things like being concerned about reduced frequency of sex or the impact of breastfeeding uh, or impact of, of mood or fatigue, all of these different things. And what we found was quite a lot of overlap. So if we looked at just the top five concerns, and some of them are pretty the same between new moms and uh, new dads. This is a had mostly uh, all mixed sex. Uh, I think it was all a mixed sex 
uh, sample in this one. So they were both concerned about reduced frequency of sex, and they were both had a high concerns about changes in body image for the mom being a, a key concern impacting their sexuality. But then there were also a couple that were different between the two. So the mothers were more concerned with their own physical recovery and the impact that that would have on sexuality. And they were also more concerned about the impact of childcare on interest in sexual activity. The dads were more concerned about differences in sexual desire, in particular, where they had higher desire than the mom. Yeah, and that was one of the key ones that was higher for the dads. So that being said, the caveat I want to give is, so we saw those differences in terms of the top five concerns, but like ranked highly for both. So in that study, it was like over 90% of both moms and dads were reporting at least 10 out of these 20, this list of 20 or so sexual concerns. So it's really like ubiquitous, these sort of like topics of, of issues. But the key thing is that it's not necessarily super distressing for everyone, right? So everyone's saying like, this is an issue uh, for us, but some people, like you were saying before, there's a lot of variability in sort of like the negative implications it has, because for, for many folks, they might have expected it to be this way. So like, yep, it's an issue that we're having sex. Yeah, I'll endorse this. This is an issue that we're having a lot less sex, but you know what? We kind of thought it would be this way and we're just going to give it some time. And others, it's like, yep, we're having sex a lot less frequently. And like, it's really a problem for, for us. I feel less close to my partner. I feel like we're not connecting as much. I miss it. I miss the pleasure. I miss the closeness. So that sort of piece around how distressing it is, is really important to understand in terms of, you know, who might need some extra help. That makes total sense. And it's probably in part a reflection of whether people are making a comparison to, say, pre-pregnancy and what their levels of sex were. And so, you know, cognitively, it might seem like a much bigger shift for some people than it is for others. So it makes sense that it's going to be more distressing uh, for some. So another common concern I hear from parents, both newer and older, is that they struggle to find a space for sex in their relationship because the kids are always around or they're worried about the kids overhearing them and, you know, being scarred for life. So how do you deal with a concern like that? So how can parents create space for sex in their relationship when kids enter the picture? Because this is just a really common issue people struggle with. And we know that this was a really common issue, especially during the pandemic when the kids were around a lot more than they were before. Yeah. And it's tricky because when the kids are asleep, that's when people feel more tired too, right? Later at night. So it's going to it's gonna be different for everyone what they're comfortable with. So some new parents are comfortable with putting a lock on their door, in their bedroom door, for example. And they might not be, you know, uh, going up there to lock the door when the kids are, you know, awake and running around the house. But like they might feel anxious because they put the kids to bed. But sometimes the kids come out in the middle of the night or, you know, not middle of the night, but they come out an hour later because they haven't fallen asleep yet. So having that lock and that bit of space to just say, mom will be out in a second. It doesn't mean you're going to ignore your kid, but it just gives you that little bit of separation to be able to uh, relax enough to, to get in the mood for sex. So that's kind of a, a very practical small tip. And, and again, it's not about like if your kid comes to the door that you tell them, I'm just not available. It's that it gives you that little bit of space that they're not going to like walk in to be able to say be out in a minute. And then of course, when the kids ask like, what were you doing in there that you needed a lock? 
I would say if the kid is old enough to be asking that kind of a question, they're also old enough at, at that point to have had a conversation with them about what sex is. And, you know, talking to your kids, it's, it's never too too early, I would say, to talk to your kids about, about sex. And so they're going to know from an early age that like, yeah, what sex is and that their parents have it. And that can also you know, help with that. Again, it's not them coming into the room and, and you know, scarring them for life, as you're suggesting, but they're going to know that this is part of part of life. So those are, you know, a couple of couple of ways, I guess, to, to start the conversation and start talking about it. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Now, let's say that, you know, couples are experiencing issues during pregnancy, postpartum period, or longer term, once kids enter the picture, and they've tried the self-help stuff, but it's not working. So when is it time to see a sex therapist? And how can someone go about finding a good, reliable sex therapist who's competent, who knows what they're talking about? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, really, the key indicator is going to be that like distress, like, is it causing you conflict with your partner? Are you upset and worried about it? That's the indicator that it's time to go and talk to someone because you feel like it's causing conflict and distress in your relationship for a period of time. And you feel like you've tried some things or you've tried talking about it, and you're really not finding that you have the tools to work through it on your own. So that's yeah, I'd say that's number one indicator. And then in terms of finding someone, it's I mean, it depends on where you're located. Often there are you can just do start with some Googling to look for someone and you want to look for someone who has on their website, like has listed some of their credentials. So where did they get their degree? Where did they do their training that they have, you know, some particular expertise and understanding around either couple therapy or sex therapy. Those are some of the things that you want to look for. And then I would also ask them. So when when you meet with someone for a consultation, oftentimes, you know, people come to that appointment expecting to that they're going to be asked a lot of questions from the therapist and they will because that's sort of a starting point but it doesn't mean that there's not also sort of space for you to ask questions as well so you can say you know we've really struggled since having a baby is that something that you've ever like worked on before with couples and like what would be your general you know approach to that and you're you want to look for someone who is able to answer that question (laughs) who's able to answer and say you know either they've seen it before but also you know that they show an understanding of some of the issues that are unique to this particular, you know, point in time for couples. I think that's great advice. And, you know, when you're finding a therapist, it's a matter of doing your research and finding the person who's the right fit for you and your relationship circumstances. And so, for example, if you're part of the LGBTQ plus population, it's looking for somebody who indicates that they are LGBTQ affirming in their approach or that they have training or competency in that area. And if you're in some type of sexually open or polyamorous relationship, you know, somebody who is affirming of consensual non-monogamy. So it's really doing your research. And also, as you said, it's kind of interviewing the therapist a bit first to make sure that they're the right fit for you, because not all therapists are created equal. And if you're looking for resources on maybe how to find a therapist in your local area who is certified, you can visit my website, sexandpsychology.com. And I have a link to several therapist locator tools available. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Natalie. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and maybe even participate in one of your upcoming studies? So you can go to www.natalieorosen.com. It would be the website. I also have a secondary website called uh, www.com 
postbabyhankyhanky.com. And that's actually a knowledge translation uh, website uh, that talks that has a bunch of videos and other resources and is about sort of taking the science and packaging it into sort of more easily understandable bits and pieces to help uh, couples start the conversations around sex. And I'll just mention that both of those two websites are being revamped. They're still available in the next couple months. They'll be unveiled. Uh, beautiful new websites with lots of great information and opportunities to participate in research. I love it. Postbabyhankypanky.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, thank you for all of the great work and research that you do in this area and also for creating helpful resources for people who might be dealing with some of these issues so that they can develop and establish happier and healthier sex lives and relationships. So thanks again for your time, Natalie. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.